This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. If you're a regular to our show, you will know by now, we love to invite experts onto our show from the world of business to really deep dive into their financials, their company model, discuss what makes them different and ultimately help us make better investment decisions. So in today's episode, Felicity and I had the privilege of speaking with one of the market's most experienced executives in the uranium industry. We all know the world is demanding cleaner fuel alternatives. Uranium is one of the world's most abundant metals. And a fun fact, a single pellet of uranium produces the same amount of electricity as... A tonne of coal. Three barrels of oil. And 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas. Three fun facts for you. And that's why in this first episode, we really want to focus on the commodity itself, as we think investors don't really know the full benefits in terms of ESG, but also costs, duration to uranium. And we think that's why this commodity is in the centre of the global transition to cleaner energy solutions and the big buzzword decarbonisation. That's right. And we think there's a lot of misconceptions about uranium. So John really myth busts this for us in this episode. Now in the second episode, John Borshoff, who is the CEO and Managing Director of Deep Yellow, is going to come back and speak to us about Deep Yellow and the latest project updates and his outlook and plans for the company in the decade to come. Before we get into our conversation, a quick reminder, guys, our chat today is not considered personal advice. Even though we're registered advisors at Shoreham Partners, please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything discussed is based on facts known at the time, which is the 11th of the 4th, 2023. Welcome, John, to Talk Money to Me. We're very excited to have you on the show. Very pleased to be here. Now, to kick off our conversation, can you give us your background in uranium? We all know that you're a well-known global expert in this field. So what sparked your interest in this commodity? So I came in after, after Vietnam at the tail end of the, uh, the oil, oil shock. Or, and and the nickel boom. So I spent two years with uh, with a with a nickel company, and then um, there started to be this big interest in in nuclear. And in I think seventy four, I joined uh, a, a Canadian group and got my first taste of of uranium, having having understood gold and nickel and base metals and all that sort of work. And I found it to be completely different and quite captivating because I was really interested in the energy equation. So I then joined a, a West German group uh, who gave me a, a huge sort of boost up in knowledge and they were the discoverers of Key Lake and in Canada. And I travelled, I as I say, I saw the industry not only from geological but also uh, from the sort of marketing, mining, 
financing and and it gave me an insight and I got even more involved in the sort of, as I say, electricity and nuclear and uh, and all the other technologies at the time, which was only sort of coal essentially and, uh, and nuclear. So after uh, Euronerds with the two mine policy, um, the the uh, they pulled out of Australia. I took their databases over, which were global, and uh, and used that as a as a platform to found uh, Paladin. And that company then was founded in ninety one, uh, ninety two, uh, listed in ninety three. And after two years, I was in I was in uranium for that, and I just was a bit little bit sort of jaundiced and, uh, and I thought oh, I'll try base metals but after two years and it really became apparent that nuclear was really still way to go told my board about this they knew nothing of it they gave me full reign and from then we persisted in a contrarian way to to build up a uh, a uranium portfolio and really that from that period 95 2002 it was a hard slog you know there was hardly any money uh we were everybody's heard the story down sort of two million dollar market cap and but still building a team still focused and then um off it went uh the 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 uranium side and uh we then did did everything uh china came along and Paladin became the the sort of darling of investment as huge market cap, uh, and was used as a model. And it was the only company junior that that developed uranium mines. And that was post Fukushima, which was that dead period. And then after that, I uh, um, the uh, the China thing died or didn't die down. Fukushima came along. And, and Paladin was going on song. Everything, its vision was turning to reality. It's the only one we were sort of eight million pounds a year, six, you know, uh, fifth, seventh largest producer, two projects, four upgrades, and it was just a great team that we developed with innovation. So there was a lot of new stuff in, in these mines, uh, in these processing plants that weren't there before, and why not? Because for 20, 30 years there'd be nothing built before and they were sort of all aged aged uh, sort of processing plants. When Fukushima came along, the, we were carrying a lot of debt. We're sort of using the uh, the sort of FMG model, you know, carrying debt rather than equity raising. And uh, and and in, 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 in fact in those times FMG and Paladin were neck to neck in terms of what they were sort of doing. And uh, and then when Fukushima came along, it was still about three and a half or three point two billion. Um, and we thought, oh, after after Chernobyl and the experience there, the, the Japanese will see it for what it is. Of course, they didn't. We didn't raise the, we didn't kill off the debt, and uh, and and then just the debt became the problem. The company got into strife, even though technically it was doing okay. I left in 2015, and uh, amicably, it was. Yeah, I mean, I was there from the beginning. They needed financiers to sort of. Re, re, uh, re, sort of panel beat the company, and, um, and I thought, oh well, I'll just retire. And then I saw the um, another opportunity, actually, which was I built the company Paladin on a demand 
dynamic. You know, nobody thought any more nuclear reactors would be built. And uh, so on that basis, um, we, we and the board allowed me to sort of invest in properties while nothing was nothing was um, sort of uh, of interest to anybody. In fact, the Langer Heinrich deposit I bought for $15,000 and um, it was just ridiculous. People wanted to get out of the, out of the sector. And then I thought there's no reason, no need to repeat the Paladin uh, because you'll never repeat the same thing. If it's, you know, you're trying to sort of copy everything. And, and it hit me that in the next cycle, what would be the driver would be the supply dynamic mm-hmm. that that nuclear would would drive and uh, would 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 increase. But who were going to be the builders apart from the uh, you know sort of Cameco's and and Kazadimprom, particularly as the sort of uh, expertise had died out, uh, people were stuck in their churnable deposits. Nobody was discovering new things apart from next gen and fission in, 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 in Canada. And uh, so that was the punt. And uh, I thought, bloody hell, I'll give it another go. And and the Deep Yellow was a company that I'd sort of supported with Paladin as an exploration arm of the company. I took that over. It was struggling like anything. It was $6 million, nowhere to go. Had some nice properties in Namibia. And um, and, and it had no Chinese or private equity interest. The, all the other companies were flooded, contaminated by this. So whatever you did would be affected either by a private equity group trying to exit after 10 years, you know, five, eight years of suffering. And the Chinese were sort of very sort of only oriented to themselves and you couldn't get a corporate you know, dynamic going, and and thankfully Deep Yellow fitted that, uh, you know, fitted that that sort of requirement. And in uh, twenty uh, late twenty sixteen, I started Deep Yellow on this dynamic, on a two, on a two sort of dual uh, strategy of developing uh, the uh, Namibian projects, even though the previous management had spent 60 million on them we thought that there was real upside still unfounded and also sector consolidation because of the years of sort of torture destruction uh, basically a broken industry that did nothing and then after any episode like that sector consolidation becomes a big thing so after five years, we've achieved on both of those, and uh, and that's my sort of uranium story, and a and a very much oriented to energy, what it is, how these technologies can can work, and if we get onto renewables, I'll give you my unbiased opinion of that technology as well. And that is such an interesting backstory and, and really gives our listeners a lot to go on and, and what this episode's going to be about. I mean, argued uranium as a commodity is a safe haven. It offers defensive characteristics in ter- times of volatility. You know, nuclear reactors get turned off last, e.g. during COVID. You know, we also think that uranium is an un- unsubstitutionable fuel source for 10% of global electricity supply and will really benefit from the coming flight to real assets. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, and just to recap how 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 much this this is so, we were in five years ago the 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 whole dynamic was a supply shortage that was looming because there's no investment in in new and there, and there wasn't any need and the prices were too low. So even on the demand on the supply dynamic, there was going to be shortfall. 
But in the intervening five years, two things happened that exacerbate this. One was the zero emission targets globally that, that were set. And what that put on centre stage is how the hell is anybody going to get to zero emission in, in uh, 27 years? It's impossible, but we can talk about that later. And the other one was the, the, uh, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, which opened up the vulnerability of, of, of supply, the need for diversification, the, uh, the, uh, as the Germans found out, chasing cheap gas has its, has its problems and they are really in dire straits now. So the whole world is now looking back and to say we need diversification and, uh, and the diversification, by the way, is, is uh, you've got to look at it in terms of the incredible fuel supply chain. So there's uranium, yellow cake that comes out of the drum from the, from the deposit. This goes into a converter, with which there's about three or four facilities worldwide that convert that to a, a gaseous substance. And then it goes to the enriching people and they then turn it into the energy product that, that, that runs the reactors. So diversification was necessary both at the supply side and not so much because Russia is not endowed with uranium, and uh, although Kazakhstan is, but in the diversification also in the enrichment side, which is turning the, the, the base uranium into an energy product that can be consumed by reactors. And this diversification plus zero emission had an enormous impact, which the world is still struggling to understand. Before the zero emissions, uh, people could be fooled that renewables were a, uh, uh, you know, a, a swapsy for all these huge heavyweight technologies that supply uh, dispatchable power. And there was not too much sort of focus. But when zero emissions came out, all of a sudden it put how weak renewables are and, in fact, at most they're supplemental only to heavyweight uh, industries like the coal. I mean, coal is, is now, I agree, it's, it's on its way out. It'll take much longer than, uh, than the world appreciates maybe, uh, gas and nuclear. And so nuclear with its smallest footprint, be it in terms of resource needed to build in terms of area to, to operate from, be it in a safety, be it in cost, the whole lot it wins and, and, zero, and it's the lowest carbon emitter in the, in, of all the technologies, including renewables, believe it or not. And that's really the twofold. The analysts are now looking at, you know, how, how, how the hell everybody's going to get to this uh, energy requirement where there's zero emission. And, and that in itself is a, is a lie that the, that the politicians and the ignorance are always going for simple Simon crap and thinking that there's fairies in the bottom of the garden that are pumping electricity out and I'll just tap that. And, and of course, it's not going to happen. It's a hugely dangerous uh, uh, sort of attitude that they have and believing on blind faith that a product, that a technology that only works six hours a day is going to supply the other 18 hours 
and uh, even with batteries, which are never going to fill in that, that, that huge gap. And that sort of transition, how it's going to trend, uh, the analysts still haven't got it, the uh, ideology is getting in the way, although the sort of a lot of greenies are now saying, goodness me, we can't, we can't. Uh, uh, proceed like that, and um, and the risk perceived risk of radioactivity, which is so so dealable, is uh, now got to be looked at in amongst all the youngsters and and uh, the grandmothers of saving the planet, which is a huge risk. In in if you believe in global warming, if you believe that uh, there there are risks, well, that any other risk is dwarfed against that. So there's. Fabulous changes coming up ahead, and and they are on us at the moment. And companies are benefit, you know, uh, are benefiting from this. So speaking of the changes and and moving forward, because as you've said, through your long tenure and building up Paladin to you know what it was, and then you left in two thousand and fifteen, you've now moved to the supply side dynamic, which I think is a fantastic lesson that you've just shared with us and our listeners. So I want to ask you this question. On China. So we know today that the US and the UK are currently leading the way in nuclear energy, but it is forecasted that China will, you know, be one of the largest markets for uranium on the global market going forward. But then, as you just said, the contradiction is they they want to contribute about 10% of the overall country's energy using nuclear by 2030. But that's also the same time that experts say that their emissions to carbon is going to peak. So you've got this drive forward on the ESG factor, but they're also still not addressing climate change. So I guess on the diversification, the supply chain piece, what are your thoughts on China and, you know, the goals in the next sort of 10, 20 years that they've put out there? So China is the only uh, country that has been methodically pursuing a consistent strategy uh, of, first of all, electrification and and because of their sort of poor situation in that at 2002, they decided to introduce uh, uh, nuclear as these big beasts that could introduce huge chunks of electricity and and really have an impact, and not just token you know a token technology that's out there just to feel good. So the interesting thing about China is that uh, when it announced this, it essentially had no nuclear industry of a non-military type. It had a few reactors, I think three or four. And they said that they were going to build 50 reactors by 2020, which nobody believed. You know, the US thought, oh, here's those mad Chinese, blah, blah, and and, uh, and blow me down. China built up not only not only uh, got to 48 reactors and everybody, all the pessimists, ah, oh, look, they only got 48 and not 50. And that was with, with uh, Fukushima in between where everything went to hiatus for three or four years while people re retooled, rebooted, uh, fine-tuned their safety aspects of, of the technology, which people don't talk about much in terms of safety achievement. And they, they also established universities with 30,000 people on nuclear so that, and industries to build up the heavy components. for. So they, they really had a plan. And, and what few people understood is that those 50 reactors were their blueprint for establishing the industry at all levels, supply, technology, their own reactors. They were sort of pinching off the uh, Chinese, uh, sort of the French reactors and, and some of the uh, uh, American ones having now now developed their own, which is a version of the Westinghouse reactor. And, uh, and they, they really have got 
a, 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 a great program. So they have also announced now that by 2035, they're going to build another 150 reactors, which requires them to build 10 reactors a year. Now, that's actually possible because in the 1990s, the US was building eight to nine reactors a year. And, uh, and that was, even though Chernobyl had happened, there was a lot of uh, 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 reactors on con you know, contracted to be built and they were built. So even with uh, uh, sort of project management systems, which were old, not very much computerized and all of that, uh, they could do that. So never mind with the modern sort of building technologies that they have, that they can, they can do this. And, uh, and the Koreans have shown that in the Emirates where they build those four reactors with, with uh, you know, on, essentially on time and on budget. So here we go, China as a centerpiece. And by the way, if you go for nuclear, to have anything less than 20% of your power, you're wasting your time. So the 10%'s not enough. They've really got to ramp it up? Oh, no, that's global. So global is the equation. But you'll find uh, Europe is, uh, as, 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 a, as a United States, is 20%. Uh, uh, the UK was 20 Germany was. Uh, there's 20% or plus. Uh, at 20% is a sort of a minimum. Um, countries are getting to 30 and they're aiming for 60%. And um, so that, that is, uh, uh, that's a need. And when you look at China, and they, even with those reactors they're looking at, they're still sort of sitting there. I think they'll get to about 12, 15%. They've still got to build a huge amount to get the benefits of nuclear both in terms of what it can deliver and strategically what it can offer. Because as I, I think, uh, Felicity, you mentioned, um, that what's the remarkable thing about nuclear is that, uh, that they've got 18, year, 18 months between refuelling generally, and generally they've built a, a sort of uh, some uh, spare, you know, spare cells uh, to uh, rods for replacement for the next lot. So essentially they're immune from fuel supply for, for three years to four years uh, and, and they don't react, whereas coal is on a four-day, five-day, gas is on, a, on, on probably, uh, well, it was uh, less, than, less than a month and you really, you're out, you're out, of, out of fuel. So these, these, the benefits of nuclear are much more than just price, safety, zero emission, but really, uh, you know, how, and how uh, sort of independent these units are of uh, short-term volatility of supply. So that's, that's China as a doing it on their own and believing, be, it, be the uh, climate going up or down, they, they really know where they're going. Uh, America, by the way, is on 20% nuclear. They, they really are going to try and maintain that. What about Australia? Where are we tracking? Are we even in the ballpark here? No. But, um, Australia's had a, a strange history with, uh, with uh, uh, uranium. It's very much a German attitude without, without the industrial power base uh, that, that, that that country offers. So I, I always used to look at the, uh, even back in the early days, <clears throat> you'd see the graphs of all the various technologies of countries, uh, and and they would all have um, uh, you know the uh, the green at that stage, 
or yellow, which was nuclear. And, uh, and then to top it up, there was some black, which was coal. And you'd look at one and it had a developed country that had the whole bar black, and that was Australia. It was just really. It was just awful, and um, and so when you look at, a, I always compare uh, Canada with Australia. The population they're a bit more than we are, but essentially same country, same sort of people, and um, and they they have you know a, a well established uh, uh, nuclear industry. Uh, they have a, uh, a f- uh, they occupy part of the fuel cycle above producing uranium. They've got uh, conversion and some fabrication. They've got a technology called CANDU, which is a, 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 a type of reactor, and they are now into these SMRs, these uh, small modular reactors. Now, this is a country that's got hydro. They've now hydro has reached its, its peak. And essentially, the country is going to, is running on 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 nuclear and, uh, and and hydro. But the big thing about Canada is that that all that technology, all that sort of advanced uh, uh, system of, of electricity generation, has actually reflects into the universities, into the type of people it trains. And all of a sudden, you've got not just uh, training up. Um, uh, people that can nail solar panels onto roofs, which requires about three, four days of education, but real serious engineers, uh, environment, the whole, the whole lot. Now, I'll come back to Australia, and um, Australia will get there kicking and squealing, and it is already, <laughs> it is already getting there because um, the the uh, half the poor those politicians or anti can actually say the word nuclear and get halfway through it without choking up, and uh, and that has been the result of of the orcas the submarines, and and these submarines are telling you these are mobile reactors you know there's no difference between what is in a a, a submarine to what is a reactor on the ground and they're a small uh, uh, modular reactor. Uh, except each module runs a separate uh, uh, submarine. Now you can't you can't have <laughs> you can't have this bit and, and deny the advantages of that bit because what advantages the nuclear has in the in the nuclear in the re, in the military in the submarine side there are equal advantages in the civilian side in producing uh, these. The big thing with um, with the uh, the politicians, where they're driving the country, to, I think, to economic ruin. I think 2030 will identify this, where there'll be such a shortfall of energy, and there'll be, you know, I believe there'll be blackouts. I don't think you can shut down so much, uh, uh, sort of, uh, as much as we want, uh, fossil fuel uh, generation, uh, without a, a sensible transition. Particularly as you realise that for 320 years. You can talk about you know, the industrial revolution and the and the digital technology revolution and all this bloody bullshit, but it's all been driven on cheap, reliable power. And now they're going to change it in twenty seven years. You know what I mean? You can't. It doesn't, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because Australia as a resource has about what one third of uranium resources. So it does seem strange that we're still behind the eight ball here. Absolutely, we have we have that, 
we we've got the places and and the uh, and everybody's to say oh where who's going to be near me no I don't want to be near me and this and that and now in America for instance and it's going to be worldwide they found look I don't know the exact number but about four or five hundred uh, coal sites that you can put small nuclear reactors in there I mean these are not small um, the the small nuclear reactor is about two to three hundred megawatts. Hmm. Whereas the the big the big beasts, uh, which you which which you still need, uh, about a thousand to fifteen hundred megawatts. The average power station, coal-fired power station, sits about four hundred to six hundred. A big one is eight hundred, rarely. So you you if you if you take out the the um, uh, coal-fired power station. You whack in two, uh, environmentally everything's right, the, all of the, the grids, the distribution is right, uh, the synchronicity is absolutely perfect, and you just whack them in where, where these coal-fired power plants are, and they emit less uh, toxicity than the coal-fired power plants. So it'd be a cleaner site even. So so sites are, and it's going to be harder and harder for governments to defend as these SMRs, are starting to be deployed around the world, of which they say by 2050 there might be five to six hundred deployed, and um, the uh, and five to six hundred of those is is you know you've got to sort of divide it by by five uh, about uh, to get the number of you know sort of large type reactor equivalents, and um, so I think that the debate will will be starting. I think that. The coalition have seen uh, this. They've seen that, uh, you know, um, uh, with the announcement of the nuclear reactors and all these bloody suburbs or shires that are nuclear-free and uh, and running all these X-ray bloody uh, uh, things around the place, uh, nobody's rebelled against these nuclear reactors. And um, so they're, they're saying, well, look, they're not going to rebel about that and they're not... They're not rebelling against even, uh, you know, when, when it comes, they have a policy. There'll be a serious proposition where people can choose one way or the other. John, our latest update from Trade Tech basically said that the long-term uranium pricing trend is upwards as a result of looming supply deficits, lengthy development timeframes, increased spot market activity and geopolitical uncertainties. So what's your outlook for the uranium pricing trend? Five years ago, and, and we used to do supply-demand studies in, in Paladin, and, and they were very relevant because we were the only uh, company actually building uranium operations. So we sort of knew engineering-wise what it involved and all of that. And uh, we thought, you know, to get uh, to incentivise uh, new production, you needed a plus 60. I, I said we, we wouldn't start anything up less than 65. And, and I didn't care what the what the rate of return was and all of this. So what's happened since then? The price moving from twenty one dollars to fifty fifty five is a is a in terms of sustaining the future industry is is a complete you know a yawn. It, it won't do anything. And uh, and even Cameco are now saying that look you need you need. 65 and they wouldn't be surprised at at, uh, at 90 dollars and i believe i believe that I, I think that there are two issues there's a growing demand and if you, you're looking at um uh, 150 reactors that 
that the Chinese are planning to build and are building. Uh, what you've had, uh, the phenomenon that you've had over the last two years is one that hasn't been repeated since the oil shock days. So how? what was the difference in the oil shock is that almost unanimously over a period of four or five years, 30 countries, government said, we want nuclear. We don't want, we, we are suffering from this oil shock. The, you know, the Arabs have sort of uh, uh, blackmailing us and we need to bloody well sort out a, a, a longevity. And so policy was determined on a top down, on a, on a global thing and all the sort of sycophantic, uh, uh, low level engineers that, that pretend they know something, they're working for utilities and that, they became disregarded. Well, there was not many utilities then. You know, there was very few reactors uh, in, the, in the 70s. So when China came, it was one country that said nuclear and that boom within which Palin was created, you can see what energy it gave to the uh, nuclear and to the uranium markets. But the rest of the world essentially stayed quiet, you know, da, 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 and all that. In the last three years, or not three years, 15 months, there, ha there has been a phenomenon, and that has been where there has been about 14, 15 developed countries have declared nuclear. UK, um, the uh, Finland, France, from saying they were going to cut back 50%, now looking at another 15 or 12 reactors. Japan has turned around from phasing out to slowly to saying, look, we want uh, uh, 27 reactors back online of the 35 they have available. Korea has reversed from pull out to now uh, growing. Czechoslovakia, you name the Eastern European countries. So this top down is, is actually determining policy. And that's, that's where uh, uh, I think, uh, well, I'll come back to price in a minute. And, uh, and so that demand and then looking at a structurally uh, sort of inhibited supply sector, because essentially it's been in sedentary mode, a very few of the uh, hopefuls, the ones that have said, I've got a deposit and I'm going to produce, have actually ever built uranium mines. And it's a complicated business for some reason. In the 75-year history, junior, you know, what I call Paladin was a junior, uh, there's only been three companies that achieve production. What have they been? Can you list them? They were Denison in the 50s, which were part of the uh, uh, militarisation of, of, of nuclear, uh, 55. Uh, that was a, a little company called uh, um, Queensland Mines in Arnhem Land that, uh, 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 that developed and then phenomenally of, to a much greater size Paladin. So of the hundreds of companies that have said, we're going to, going to, going to, going to. Three have only done it. Yes. And very few have done it. And you're one of them. Yes. And that team, by the way, is now with me or the core team uh, because I believe I'll get back to price again, but I believe that uh, a company needs not just a good asset and not only a market, but it needs a team. Agree. It's like having a, a fantastic shining aeroplane and nobody can fly the bloody thing and all they do is look at and it. And they keep crashing. <laughs> yes. And it, so there's going to be, uh, there's going to be issues with, uh, with getting projects 
onto production, a sort of a uranium in the in the deposit to uranium in the drum to uranium in a reactor is a hell of a large, bloody laborious and and somehow difficult. And it's not not like an ounce of gold in a deposit. Very easily and quickly can it get into the mint as 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 refined gold because there are dozens scores of great companies and scores of good teams that can do that for copper, you name it. So can I ask you this before we get back to um, price, just because I think it's it's really great for our listeners to understand. So as you've identified, it's really hard to get the actual mine into production. So where are we in terms of the timeline on the next mine to actually get there, do you think? How far have we got to wait? Right. So is what ha- what happened in the in this sort of terror period of uranium price going right down and uh, and the um, ura- uh, you know the production where it was going even though there were reactors being built uh, what happened in in that side is that because I'll come back to the enrichment these enriching facilities are run by these centrifuges and these centrifuges are remarkable fine tuned sort of uh, bits of gear that have to, once they're started, they have to spin. And I think they spin around at 60,000 revs a minute. And why that is, is they separate the isotopes. And from that, you get the the, the, the fissionable material enriching as against the non-fissionable, and you get enriched, enriched uranium, which can then feed the reactor. Now, when there was not much need for uranium, these things still have to spin. And what happened is, is that then those those uh, um, those those facilities can operate and drop the the tailings uh, um, before, let's say, it goes from 0.7, which is the universal. That's how much of the fissionable material there is in a in, in, in uranium, and they drop it to 0.25, 0.28, and the rest would be called depleted uranium. And then they'd spin it and then drop the tailings down to 0.22. And this created an, ex- an extra equivalent 40 million pounds of uranium. And what happened was then the projects mothballed, like MacArthur, like the Paladin ones and like others, and they dropped down and they took about 40 million pounds off the market. You got mm-hmm. me? But they were still the the market was still equilibrated. So now, with the more demand on the on the um, uh, enriching facilities, they can't afford to rerun and uh, the, what they call underfeeding. And now they have to go back up, and they they won't be producing this extra uranium that can be fed. And so, there's forty million will come off. You know, won't be there. And these mothballed come. Uh, uh, operations like MacArthur, like Paladin, are now saying they're going to start up and they will produce. But people think, oh, this is coming extra in the market. It's not. But it's not. It's not. It's just more. There might be a little bit extra and all of that, but it's just there to equilibrate. So those those that are, that are and boss, you know, the, the boss one uh, as well. So that shortage <coughs> that's there but for many reasons is not going to be solved by these mothball companies coming back in operations. It needs new production. 
and uh, and I don't believe uh, Kaz Adam Prom is is uh, is up to that. I think it, that has reached reached a cruise altitude in terms of optimal production, and probably will start going down. And and uh, and Cameco. Um, uh, well, they, I don't think, uh, they have some ideas what will be, but it's not going to be all additive pounds. Some of those will be replacive pounds of operations that then, their own operations that stop production, and they need replacive to maintain the status quo, never mind the additive for the additional. So it's a complicated sort of way. So what you're really saying, and coming back to price now, correct me if I'm understanding this wrong, the the new production and supply is not really filling the hole, so that's probably going to just keep pushing up the price long term. So coming back to the outlook, would love to hear it if you can give us your outlook pricing. And I guess also if you can tie into, can you explain to us how you work out the equation, the cost of production versus the spot price? So spot price to me is a, is a it's not a, it's not a, a real, uh, not a real, um, uh, cost of fuel uh, uh, spot it was derived from the need to to make short term adjustments in the requirements for for utilities that had got term contracts out there that were done maybe four or five years ago and in the current year coming year they they would find themselves short by a hundred thousand pounds or four hundred thousand pounds and they would go into the spot market to fill those in. And, uh, and and they would then, interestingly, you've got to look at it in terms of how they filled it in. They, uh, If you look when you produce uranium to when you have enriched material, it's probably 18 months or more. You've got to move it to there, you've got to go to there, and this and that and the other. So that means there's inventories all the way up the fuel cycle. So the utility that wanted a bit more uh, material to for fabrication of rods would buy some of that enriched material from a from somebody that held it, and then they would purchase some uh, yellow cake and put it at the bottom end of the of the cycle, and so the whole thing sort of works like that. And uh, and so spot market uh, then uh, evolved into now these ETFs like Sput and uh, Yellow Cake. Uh, where the uh, there's another element uh, of plundering spot, uh, which is to a put pressure on 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 uh, you know uh, depleting the the inventory that's uh, that's out there and uh, and holding that and not necessarily in the midterm for selling it back into the market, but keeping it as a as as a as a commodity where their, their, their NAV is you know, getting better and all of those things and they have an a ever-increasing uh, asset uh, value. The, so spot price then uh, is much more volatile around the term. Generally speaking, term, you get about 15 20% more premium than on the spot. That's because the company, the producer, commits long-term with all the sort of difficulties of mining and all of those risks, and they guarantee delivery in three years' time uh, to, uh, 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 to, to, to provide uh, uranium, and that's why there's this premium. So the, the cost of production, I mean, uh, trade tech used this, uh, this word called 
productivity something or other, cost of production. And, and their cost of production is $53. Uh, I've always argued the whole need for this. It's a sort of like an all-sustaining cost. And it started off at 45 And And when you see something's broken is, is when you see cost of production at 55 I think it is. You can look it up on Trade Tech. And, uh, and the term, long-term price is 53 I mean, this is this is bullshit. Yeah. This is like somebody. This is like something's out there dead, not doing anything, and it's got to erupt and get balance. So the utilities are what are what drive this, and uh, the spots and all of those, you know, have short term uh, uh, um, value adding, but you know they're a little bit like a hot air balloon. You know, as soon as you pump bloody heat into it, it goes up, and you stop buying, and it comes down again, and it's sort of but it still helps, but it's not, as the pundits thought, the, the catalyst that would drive uh, uranium. When, when the, you know, the utilities wake up and to say, hell, there is a supply shortage, there are difficulties in new production, uranium prices won't, won't uh, uh, sort of encourage uh, or incentivize uh, a new production. And, and coming back to price then, if um, if uh, fifty three fifty five the the prices are now sort of in in the, in the fifties um, I believe uh, a term prices are now they've got a floor and a ceiling which sort of encapsulate the sixties they're sort of probably a ceiling of eighty five and a a floor of about sixty uh, but no declared price so that that means they those utilities can enter a price but it doesn't declare as a as a price adjuster, it's because it's it's there then at market. Whatever the market is, that's what they'll buy it at within that sort of upper and lower levels. My feeling is is that um, the I think we've already approached that seventy dollars will be on us within within a year, maybe a year and a half, and and once you go from fifty to sixty or seventy. What the hell stops it? When you've got, as I've said to so many people, when you've got a baker and he's got 10 loaves of bread and you've got a cube, 200 metres, of people wanting to feed their family, what's the price of bread? It's not a function of how much wheat costs and how much petrol there is and how hard the farmer worked. It's a question of real supply and demand. <coughs> so I see all pressure on, on upside of the uh, for, for, for nuclear and particularly where people are talking from the 400 reactors that are operating now where there are numbers of six to 800 big, big reactors uh, 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 sort of planned. And, um, and I think that you only have to look at the, uh, the battery, uh, like lithium. Lithium was sitting, used to sit on $500 a tonne for spodumene. Oh no! You know, look. Oh, yeah. The, the battery. Oh, if it goes to a thousand dollars, we're going to stop making batteries. Bullshit! It went five thousand, seven thousand. It's now back to four thousand five hundred. And supply demand is what what uh, regulate. It might end up at two thousand five hundred. That's a fantastic price. And um and 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 whatever. And and I think that um, uh, uranium still has to have its day. Uh, 
and uh, and these little price rises that everybody sort of drools over are not even worth commenting about. They just, you know, if you're drowning, if you're drowning, you know, 10 metres below water or you're drowning one metre below the water, it's the same same result. You die. And, um, and, and, and really uranium really needs to reach those big numbers. And our philosophy is we are not going to jeopardise value for our shareholders. We're not interested to be the first company that goes into production as if that offers some sort of bloody kudos. <laughs> what is the important part is it gives you get value. And, and when you've got the teams and you know where and we know, you know, I mean, we, yeah, there could be mistakes on our side, but, but we cover the whole A to Z aspects and, um, and we work, you know, very, very, sort of uh, engineers, they don't sort of say to us, oh, here's a, a DFS or a feasibility study. A lot of that, us is embedded in that, the technologies, you know, all of the uh, uh, elements. So, yeah, price, you know, going above 70, I reckon. Excellent. So you heard it first here. <laughs> Look, that is really promising. And we're going to go into a little bit deeper in regards to deep yellow a little bit later. Um, I think earlier you said renewable energy solutions have their challenges. And I think a lot of people truly don't understand the benefits of uranium and are still very hesitant on this, you know, as an investment in nuclear power. Now, while nuclear energy has like a really quite a bad rap, its advantage in the shifting sands of the global energy production is in its low carbon emissions and unlike renewables does not require the support of battery storage or thermal switching to run 24 7 you did kind of touch on this a little bit earlier but why do you think this what what do you think this common misconception came from Uh, i'll say it i think that people were educated by the simpsons and Mr. Burns and uh, the other fella and the running that nuclear reactor. Yes, that's so <laughs> true. It's so true. And Homer operating it like a sleep yeah, at home. Yeah, operating coming home with green hands. And uh, so the, they, they, it, it just, you know, it was part of that whole thing that just knock on industry, keep on knocking it. Um, there's a innate fear of radioactivity. And, and it's the most misunderstood uh, sort of element of, 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 of sort of, uh, of, of the whole whole system. It can be managed, it can be measured, it can be all sorts of things. And the, uh, so the, the big thing that is becoming what wasn't so important is now becoming more important. And, and when you have uh, a, a low density uh, 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 electricity technology like renewables where you need hundreds of, you, know, you need dozens and dozens of bloody uh, hundreds of square kilometres in all just to do what they're, what they're doing and, uh, and, and in that there are, there are three issues that are now becoming more important that wasn't so important before. First of all it's argued that they cannot get enough uh, nickel cannot get enough uh, 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 lithium, cannot get enough battery minerals, cannot get enough uh, uh, silica to actually build these bloody things over huge acreages where people can't even sort of, uh, uh, you know, up in WA, uh, we've got this uh, uh, digital array of, of uh, uh, telescope covering huge tracts of land. Getting land is going to be huge 
and its affordability is going to be a, a question. So the the issue of uh, uh, and and it's not that um, uh, it's not that uh, uh, cheap either because the 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 average sort of uh, solar system I, I reckon it'll be twenty year replacement. And then they'll have to find, and now they've got to bury all that stuff. How are they going to uh, renew it? And, and and those things that are very important to, apparently to, to people, especially young people, have got to look at the whole system and say, well, what do we do with these bloody things? What do we do with these huge propellers that are un, un, un you, know, you can't recycle Kevlar? It's just, you just bloody bury it. And, um, and so that sort of thing against a high-density technology where in 100 hectares you can put four times the power of the biggest solar power system you've ever seen and, uh, and on a small footprint, uh, on, on a, a technology that you can control and, and it's, it's safe, it's cheap, and, and that's, I mean, that's, the, that's the, uh, the advantages that nuclear had all the time but now are much more topical and those values that it holds are much more relevant than they were before. Yeah. And you know what? We actually, you know, we're constantly hearing about lithium, 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 and you did touch on it uh, previously. Um, but we know that Biden's IRA is not just about lithium, which is with as much as $30 billion of loan guarantees and incentives for the nuclear sector. You know, we also believe that nuclear will drive social change, you know, because it is superior to other clean intermittent energies in terms of social footprint, employment, income um, and jobs, etc. Now, we're going to hear more about John's current position as Managing Director and CEO of Deep Yellow and dive deeper into why he joined Deep Yellow and the business, as well as his thoughts on the supply chain re-emergence. But first, let's hear from our sponsors. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So I want to move on to more of the final thought we have on the supply chain conversation with you, John, because we're likely to see the re-emergence of supply chain ownership uh, throughout the whole fuel cycle. You know, Cameco investing in the Westinghouse and Silex and Cameco, it's just the beginning, we think. What are your thoughts on this? You know, because there's really two parts, like you said, supply chain and then enrichment. So the... It's an interesting thing that that you've raised, actually, and it's a it's a it's a great observation. Um, we are going through a transition period that I believe will dwarf the oil shock days, where we went from uh, hardly any reactors, maybe ten, twelve, to four hundred and sort of um, forty by the end of the that century uh, uh, into the noughties. and. Um, and in that, there was there were some things that, uh, tried, uh, and and one was uh, when Westinghouse and GE, who were the they're going to be the main builders of new reactors in America, following Eisenhower's great comment of a thousand by the year two thousand. That's the react the amount of reactors. So the the Westinghouse and and GE, but Westinghouse in particular, had huge amount of orders. And to commit to those orders, it had to commit to supplying a certain amount of uranium uh, in the initial start-up and in all of those sort of things. And what Westinghouse did is it started um, participating in the exploration side, something that you bugger all about, but in joint venture in this and that and the other. It ended up that they couldn't uh, supply because uranium was at $8 a pound at that stage and it went up in price and, and they couldn't buy anything and, and, and Westinghouse declared bankruptcy. So, uh, and, and a lesson learned. So uh, now crank it up, um, you know, 30, 40 years later and, uh, and, and I see uh, the Westinghouse involvement in Cameco is a completely different thing than maybe you see or the Cameco uh, propaganda machine is saying. What that, in actual fact, who will drive Cameco is Westinghouse. Westinghouse is going to do new bills. Westinghouse is, they're the ones that uh, have uh, the new markets in Ukraine. The Westinghouse are the ones that are going to supply new rods and they need security of supply. So Brookheeds, yes, it appears that, but it'll be, it's not the tail wagging the dog here. The dog is Westinghouse. And, and so there's a subtle change in how <clears throat> that supply chain will work. The, and that'll, other things will happen. But all it does to me is it replicates what needed to happen with these large reactor builders, and, uh, and, uh, which happened in the 70s. And it's now happening because they see this huge, huge positive future there. And in fact, Westinghouse, it was, you know, just did nothing for years and now it's trying to re-establish not only for the Americas but also for um, for the bills it's sort of trying to get into into parts of Europe. So I do see a change. I see maybe um, uh, people uh, sort of uh, um, getting involved with uh, uh, groups that have uh, 
warehouse material and then they combine up and make it into a uh, sort of production marketing company in a real sense rather than a straight conrod from the mine directly to the to the utility and and these these um, uh, developments have will create the opportunity to not only for the mining sector to consolidate into more of, of, of what's needed and and with um, with the opportunity to supply over you know 30 40 years which is what's really needed with the producer but to put some other attributes there that can make them more more beneficial to the supply and for the uh, utility yeah okay so I guess to summarize really, on the macro side of things, there is a lot of complexity to it, as you're saying, and we do need more juniors, into use your term, to come into production. But that's not going to be an overnight success. Don't be afraid no. of China, really. They, they're, they're a great blueprint, as you're saying, and watch this space. So that is a wrap, John, with you on the macro um, outlook and update for uranium as a commodity and hopefully we have demystified the common you know conception and fear that homer has created in all of our minds yeah, yeah, <laughs> nuclear energy. homer and mr burns thank you yes. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us john and we're really looking forward to having you back on to discuss deep yellow okay and thank you for listening Wow, what a fantastic episode. And we hope you learn a lot about the whole uranium sector, the commodity itself, the fears with the history of Chernobyl, obviously, that was a very popular Netflix show when it came out. But as John really honed in on this episode, there is a massive demand only growing and there's a lot of challenges with renewable energy solutions out there. So we do need to, as investors, look at nuclear and uranium. Yeah, and it's not like The Simpsons with Mr Burns and Homer. Correct. Thank you, Simpsons, for that. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shore & Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, if this conversation sparked your interest, go out and seek your own professional advice before making your investment and financial decisions. The episode was recorded on the 11th of April, 2023, obviously based on all the facts known at the time. Until next time. See you then. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.